Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and this episode is with Arnold Hartle. Arnold is a former German Air Force F-104 Starfighter and F-4F Phantom Pilot. He mainly focuses on his time on the 104, right from training up to being an instructor. He also chats about his time on the F-4 from DACT and the differences between the two types. So if you like what we do here, please head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to become part of the team and help us grow. And don't forget you can watch all our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. first become interested in aviation? Oh, uh, I grew up in the vicinity of München Riem. It was the uh, commercial airport of Munich. And I always daily saw the airplanes flying out and uh, into the airport. And uh, I was interested in flying and uh, almost addicted to fly. And I tried to contact Lufthansa when I was about 15, 16 years old and checked what it has to... what. Uh, what you have to do to become an Air Force, a, a commercial pilot. And uh, it was interesting, but then I was about 16, 17 years old, the first time I saw 104, because we were on an open day uh, and uh, st- stood on the fence and saw them taking off and landing, and I was so fascinated. And I said, okay, at that time, I want to become an Air Force pilot. And that was the initial move for me uh, when I was thinking about if this would be nice to a nice profession for myself for the next 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So what year did you join the Air Force? I actually joined the Air Force after I decided uh, for the officer career in 1969 in October. Mm-hmm. Started out with normal officer training. Uh, it took us, uh, we had well, about 100, three, over 300 young cadets, young cadets, and it took us about two years to go also to the program to become the officer training for promotion of a lieutenant. And uh, the last three months already, because during the officer training, you have to decide where you want to go. And if you want to go for the pilot career, we were elected to um, our physicals, check if you are able, your body is able to fly and have the, uh, the uh, requirements to become an Air Force pilot. And then the last three months, we went already during our officers' training to the initial training, which we did on the Piaggio 149. For the basic training, if you are able to understand, if you push the stick, that you have big houses in your view, and if you pull on the stick, you have small houses in your view. And after this, uh, then uh, we went to UPT in uh, Shepard Air Force Base. It took us almost two years yeah, good two years to get to the basic tra- jet training over in the States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, prior to T-38, we trained on the T-37. It, uh, everybody knows it. It's always, you uh, have a model in the back over here. You can have it seen afterwards. And um, at that time, we were just part of the uh, undergraded pilot training of the U.S. Air Force. We didn't have NGIP at that time, which started, I think, in 76 or 77. And that time, the German government bought slots, training slots from the U.S. Air Force. And we were together with uh, eight, nine students, German students, together with 10, 12 American students and went to UPT. A chap at Air Force passed first through the T-37, flew about 100 hours, T-37, and then transitioned to the T-38, supersonic training fighter in tandem uh, seats, basically a double-seater F-5. And uh, after, this is one of the most beautiful birds ever built, I think, the White uh, Angel. And, 
Yeah, and it was just a, a training to get routine training. Everybody got to, to before uh, to special weapon systems. The German uh, training was like this: you get uh, at that time you had two choices uh, for weapon system. Either you go to Luke Air Force Base, flying the 104, if you graduate from Shepard Air Force Base, or you go back to Germany and train on the G91, the light fighter bomber we had at that time in our Air Force. And it depends how you graduated, how your performance was. Mine was not too bad, therefore I was assigned to the F-104 at Luke Air Force Base. At that time, we didn't have already the uh, training where you can go directly to Georgia Air Force Base to train on the F-4. So, after the T-38, you were moved to Luke Air Force Base uh, to train for, uh, on the F-104. What was this like? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Flying a rocket single-seat, single-engine, it was just amazing. And uh, we were soloed only after th eight missions in a double-seater. We were going solo already. Sure, chased by an instructor, but um, it was a program. And uh, it was very... Yeah, special program. It was very uh, yeah, challenging program, but everybody wanted to fly this bird. And then you sat down and studied all the nights to, to get the academics through the academics and simulated rides. And uh, but it was really amazing because uh, we had whole aeronaut for us to fly around. Beautiful weather, beautiful aircraft, and uh, yeah, that's it about the one hundred four. <laughs> so, how much ground school did you have? Oh, initially. Just moving back to Shepard Air Force Base, we had about 1,500 hours academics and a total of about 220 hours flying on a T-37 and T-38. Mm -hmm. And at Luke Air Force Base, we had about five to 600 hours academics and 125 hours flying, all stuff for your need. Yeah. So can you remember your first flight in a 104? Oh, that's a long time ago. Actually, yes, uh, but uh, we were trained in the simulator. We were well prepared in academics about the systems, the aircraft, and I went out with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore, uh, a, my first instructor, my Luke instructor, who soloed me. And uh, by chance, I visited him uh, four years ago. St he's, now he's dead. He had heart cancer. He died or suffered cancer. But at that time, he still lived in Phoenix, Arizona. And I visited him, and I remember this, and we talked about, four years ago, we talked about our, about our first flight. We well remembered it. For him, it was standard, because he had every six weeks a new student. But for us, for me, and uh, for the other students, it was, an, uh, it was an amazing uh, moment, fly the first time in a 104. Um, what was very different uh, to the other aircraft, we didn't have any room in the cockpit, because it was very small, the dashboard and the cockpit itself was over your knees. Therefore, you had the straps, which uh, for ejection, they were put, uh, pulled back. The seat go out without any injuries. And uh, the stick, normally you have down here in the 104, it was up here, just on the breast. Uh, and if you're sitting right, it's strapped in. And the mission itself was just a standard mission. We went out, uh, trained a couple of takeoff and landings, touch and goes, and in the area, just to get familiar with the aircraft's aerodynamics. Yeah, that's it, what I remember after, uh, now it's about 43 years. <laughs> <laughs> so coming from the T-38, could you feel a difference in power and acceleration? Yes, even the T-38 had, was a supersonic fighter and had two engines. Uh, the acceleration on the 104 with the J-79 and with a double-staged, four-stage afterburner. 
uh, we had a different version over here in Germany without any switchover. Uh, in the uh, in the afterburner in our engines in Luca Alphaspet ignited, you had a couple stages and there was a switchover. And in the switchover, there was almost sometimes it was very difficult uh, that the afterburner blow out. But in this, you, you really feel the power. You were pushed in the back. Mm -hmm. In the T38, it was a normal acceleration. It was plugged in the burners. And the 104, if you plug in the burner, uh, you really felt the acceleration. But uh, only when it was cold. We had, uh, for example, when if we, uh, in summertime, or when you had about uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, outside temperature, then it was a normal acceleration. Like, uh, I said, okay, where is the burner on? Look at the gauges. Yes, it is on, but you felt it. But in cold acceleration, and I experienced it over here in Jefa, it was powerful. If you do it in a clean TF at minus 10 degrees centigrade, you feel the power, you get a kick in your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell us about some of the training sorties you did over at Luke Air Force Base? Oh, the whole spectrum we did in Luke Air Force Base. First training uh, missions were just to get familiar with the aircraft, aerodynamics. Then we started out uh, for air-to-air, -air, uh, just basic BFM, not going starting out, just one introduction is ACM missions, because at that time uh, the major part when we got back to uh, Germany was uh, fighter-bomber task. Then we get to conventional bombing, low-level training, nuclear weapon delivery training, and ended up uh, with uh, even with live bombing and... Uh, then formation exercises going out as two ships, as four ships. Uh, just training formation, flying with the 104 in two ships and four ships and three ships. And then uh, doing uh, tactical attacks in formation. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a sporty thing. If you fly low level and uh, fly line abreast with four ship and drop napalm bombs <laughs> at the same time. So how many um, pilots uh, from the German Air Force were sent to Luke Air Force Base? You can read it uh, on our Cactus Starfighter Squadron uh, homepage, and I think it's about 2,200 wow. through the whole period when the German Air Force was training in the USA, mm -hmm. went through this training. Look Air Force Base, I think we had, because we started out the 104 training already in Williams, in Lackland, I think, so you have to read it up in the book, I don't remember it uh, 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 precisely, but... Uh, we had, as everybody should know, we have a Cactus Stafford Squadron, and we have now every two years our reunion. We still have uh, yeah, engaged in this 800 pilots in my age, a couple of years younger, maybe 10 years older, and, uh, but a total of about, let's say, around 2,104 pilots were trained in the States. Mm -hmm. So what was it like working with the Americans? Was there any difficulties there? No. Especially at Luke. It, it, it's a different thing if you are in UPT and ATC. Uh, this are, uh, it's a, a kind of flying, uh, flying by the book. You have to fulfill what's written in the book in the cockpit. It was different uh, uh, in uh, Luke Air Force Base because of the kind of instructors we had there. These were guys who coming back after 100 or 200 missions survived in Vietnam. On the F-100, F-105, or even on the F-106s. And even instructor, I remember one Indian, he, was, he flew spy missions from Thailand to Vagina already 58 or 59. Mm -hmm. He was an Indian, he called the Flying Indian. Uh, uh, and um, 
these people as instructors were really amazing because, sure, you have to have the knowledge, you have to know the book, but then if you're in the cockpit or if you have a chase pilot or instructor of those kind, uh, he flew with your, his heart, with his brain, and with emotions and with common sense. And they taught you common sense flying a superb fighter bomber aircraft. Mm -hmm. So can you talk us through um, the characteristics of the 104? Yeah. Designed, everybody should know, was uh, because um, the US, US Air Force lost the Korean War with the F-86s. And uh, because they couldn't escape the SA-2s of the Soviets and the Korean. And therefore, we got the task to design. Lockheed designed a hit-and-run fighter aircraft. Fast, going high up to altitude, not being uh, recognized by rockets, and hit your target coming back. That was the initial design, uh, the design for the 104. Um, therefore, the characteristics is fast, tiny. You don't see it. It's very because if you see the pictures, it's just in metal. And in a blue sky, you won't, you won't realize where the 104 is. And um, this was the initial uh, rise, and therefore it, it, was, it worked perfect. You needed a, a certain speed to get it airborne, uh, especially at high temperatures, with configuration normally with tip tanks, and four tanks uh, configuration, it was in the fighter bomber role. It was uh, kind of different, but you had a, in a powerful engine, so it should be no problem. High speed, supersonic, perfect. Aerodynamically, very, very stable at high speed. Very, very stable at high speed and low level. Uh, it's not a bird where you, go, where you want to uh, end up in a dogfight, although you're in the six o'clock of your opponent, because uh, the turn radius is uh, yeah, not very good for a dogfight bird. But it wasn't designed for it. You see it on the small wings. It was a rocket with wing, and therefore you couldn't expect uh, the aerodynamics. It's different to a T-37 or even a Phantom. Mm -hmm. So I had a bit of a reputation as I um, heard it called the Widowmaker. Was this true? Uh, it was, yeah, just, sure. It was just a, of the uh, guys in the press and the officials who didn't know about the bird. Um, and this, uh, yeah, this attribute came to the bird when uh, we had this problem in the German Air Force in the 60s until General Steinhoff took over the Air Force. Because, and the reasons were, were just, uh, yeah, just short to explain, it was, the bird was a revolution for the German Air Force at that time. We had uh, bought, a new, no, we had, it was a present, the F-84s and the F-86s after we started again uh, the German Air Force in 1955. And, uh, and we were trained, our pilots were trained to the F-84 and F-86, just a slow bird, just an ancient bird and a very old weapon system. Then the revolutionary aircraft came, and we had problems with education, education with the pilots. We had problems with education with technicians. We had problem to convince the politician to invest more money to make the aircraft more safe, because it was designed as an interceptor aircraft, and the German Air Force wanted a recce aircraft, a fighter bomber conventional, a fighter bomber nuclear, and an interceptor aircraft. And it's four roles. In one aircraft was designed for, one, for just a single role, it's kind of different. And it took us very hard experience. We lost about 200, over 200 aircrafts and the total time with the German Air Force flew the bird. And in the initial part, we had almost a daily an accident. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in addition, over the first two years, I remember I had lost about 30, 35 birds. And uh, this is the reason for it, because we had a hard time initially to get the aircraft in uh, what you want to do it for it. But then when I started Wonderful, all the problems were solved because General Steinhoff, Steinhoff was a World War II guy, flew the uh, 262 and the burnt with his burnt face. Uh, everybody should know him and remember him. And um, he convinced military leaders to educate, to train their personnel better than they did the years ago. He convinced the politicians that we need more and more money to house the aircraft. Because we had, we had you know, we just came here with heavy rain and all, no, no bases had sheltered at the same time where the 104 would fit in. And it was standing out there. And we had about a total of 916 104s in the Air Force as a total, a grand total over the period we flew. And in the initial years, they stand outside under rain and freezing, and the equipment suffered. It was natural, especially with the avionics, electronics. And uh, then, when these problems were solved, it took us another couple, three years, even in the ministers, the Ministry of Defense had to be convinced to convince his chancellor to invest more money to get the result for a successful weapon system. And then I came in the, in the program and I flew it and I was satisfied. I'd never had a problem with the 104, especially with the J-79. You know, you know about it. Sure, there were a couple of critical situations, but we trained to do it, what to do, uh, and you knew what to do it. Uh, and I actually had one case where I thought about uh, if I need to have the ejection seat, but I was near a base that, okay, I tried a landing can do it anyway. But otherwise, it was safe. I flew 1,300 hours on the 104 without any really serious problem. And if there was a small problem, you made a safe landing or just a precautionary landing or even an emergency landing. But uh, and you got priority and it was no problem. You were trained for it. Mm -hmm. It was just an analog cockpit, gauges overall, uh, very tight, very small. Um, and uh, it was really, yeah, a standard cockpit for that time, not quite different, a lot of instruments uh, to other aircraft. We had on the left hand side, we had the weapon panel and the normal flying instruments on top in your, in your view. On the right side, you had your all for the bombing exercises, uh, your NWD running timer and, and uh, release timer. And uh, on the left hand panel, you had uh, your radio, your squawk machine. And then you have a circuit breaker panel and we had a specialty and I can show you because we had on the left hand side of the seat we had circuit breakers and if you had a problem with your external tanks to get them on gravity feet you had to pull the circuit breaker and the circuit breaker was behind the ejection seat where you couldn't reach him with your fingers therefore you had this circuit breaker puller you had it stick up in your flight suit you put it down and you could move back and pull the circuit breaker and the tanks were feeding. Mm. <laughs> That's to the cockpit. Oh, yeah, I was uh, the initial tour uh, when I graduated from Luke, I was assigned uh, to Büchel. Büchel was fighter bomber wing number 33. And the task was mainly nuclear de delivery at that time. And the secondary role was conventional bombing. Mm. Büchel is, is uh, stationed, is uh, situated in the Eiffel. 
Uh, it was basically a airbase aircraft carrier, I always say, because in, in the vicinity of Wittberg, Sembach, uh, Spangdalem, Hahn, and Büchel just in the, in the middle of it. And um, that was the first two years I would be there. So we had two squadrons, and I initially started out in the first squadron. And uh, we, uh, the routine uh, duty was in shifts, early shift and late shift, and uh, four flying periods. And uh, we had stationed at that time at the base uh, per squadron, 24 aircraft were assigned. That means 48 aircraft were assigned. 70% has to be combat ready every day. And um, we always had a period, flying period with 10, 12, 14 aircraft. And twice a day. In early shift started at 6 o'clock in the morning. Early briefing, weather briefing, breakfast, starting out flying time at 8 o'clock. Couple hours in the second period when the second launch went out about 11 or 12 o'clock after the turnaround. Then you go back at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and this, uh, the late shift squadron started at 1300. Uh, if there was no night flying, if there was night flying, uh, we started the late shift about 1600 in the afternoon. So, did your training in America prepare you for European flying? Concerning the weapon system 104, yes. Concerning the weather, the infrastructure, or the airspace is uh, concerning the airspace, no. And therefore, everybody who came over back from Luke Air Force Base were assigned to a wing or a squadron and then moved up to Jefa, where we are presently here, to our weapons school. And this uh, was a three month tour just to get introduction flights, weather flying, weather formation flying, instrument flying, instrument approaches, and even introduction flying to fly, uh, follow level in the European area. Mm-hmm. So did you train with like other NATO types? Right? Oh yeah, sure, a lot. It's NATO, NATO exercises and uh, especially with our friends, we were stationed at, uh, in Germany at that time. It was the Canadians in the, southern, in the southern region, the Americans in the Eiffel region, the Royal Air Force in the Rhine region, Basel area, Wildenraus, La Bruggen. Uh, we trained with them on a daily basis actually, briefed or non-briefed. <laughs> when, when we met as a, a fighter-bomber at 104 and you saw the FGR-2s out of Wittenrad, mm-hmm. we had to, had to get to escape, mm-hmm. try to escape. And we had, uh, on a routine basis, we had uh, combined exercises where we, via telephone, where we briefed a mission and we, we had to go through a, a defended area by FGR-2s or even by Canadians uh, and or either our air defense uh, uh, guys. And it was a routine basis. Mm-hmm. So how did the 104 compare to other platforms at that time? Um, It's kind of a very difficult question to answer because normally, sure, you you see people compare aircraft, F4 turning rates against the 104 turning rate. Today, F35 against an F15 or a a Raptor. Um, Every aircraft is designed for its role. And uh, if two companies, uh, or one company of two or three, which develops this aircraft because they are tasked to, uh, wins it, then you have a unique weapon system. Mm-hmm. And this unique weapon system to compare with other different career, a unique weapon system is very difficult. You can, prepare, you can aerodynamics compare, you can thrust and weight ratio compare. And you will have a result that aircrafts are different. But... And that this, this doesn't mean that the quality of the weapon systems is different because they're designed for a single task. Of course, yeah. 
So after your, your frontline tour, you went on to instruct at um, Yeva. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. Uh, why did I move up to Yeva? Because uh, two years flying strike, it's fun. But uh, after two years, if you reach a performance level, there's no progress anymore in flying because it's routine. Go out, fly to one hour 50 or one hour 40, low level, hit a target within five seconds uh, and uh, come back. I wanted to have a challenge, more challenge flying-wise. And uh, therefore I thought and I asked what would be for my flying career a chance to, to change it. Either change a wing or change a squadron. At that time, because I'm born in Munich, I wanted to go down to Memmingen or Lechfeld, doing basically the same thing, but in a different wing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were filled up, and they said, okay, you have the chance, go up to Yefa, be an instructor for three years, and go over to Luke to be an instructor. I said, okay, I'll sign it for it. But you have to have first the instructor course over up here, and it was a very hard course. It took me three months to become an instructor. At that time, I had 500 hours, almost knapp, uh, short of 500 hours, total 104 time. I was a first lieutenant, and uh, the instructors up here were majors and lieutenant colonels, and they laughed at me when I came up here. And mm-hmm. then I came, said, okay, we wait three more months. Then I, I reported to my squadron commander uh, after I graduated from the instructor course. Without any pink, and the pilots uh, know what a pink is, I was very proud of it. And, um, and then I said, okay, now I have a three years instructor to up here. Just to train, what I told you before, uh, the, the guys, the young guys coming back from Luke uh, for instrument flying, weather flying, all this stuff. And then I go to uh, Luke Air Force Base as an instructor, as a weapon instructor too. But uh, being a half a year over here at the IFA, I met my wife. <laughs> and I'm stuck here for 40 years. <laughs> so what would you do on a daily basis? Was there different, would you get stuck with one student or was it different students yeah. every time? No, yeah, you, you just jump to another student uh, uh, if another IP was ill or sick or whatever. Um, but the, the, the system was, and the idea behind it, just if you fly with one student, mm-hmm. that it doesn't have changed the IPs and the uh, emotions of an IP and the criteria of an, a different IP. Because it was very, uh, yeah, it was a challenging program to fly, coming back from, uh, from Luke Air Force Base being uh, just a good weather flyer, mm-hmm. coming back to and uh, try to land the aircraft with 800 uh, meters visibility and 200 feet ceiling. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we, we, tr- we tried to have one student for the whole period for f- three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, was the role filling? Or? Oh, sure, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, yeah. It was a different job, like I told you before, flying a fighter bomber in a wing, routine business. But I didn't mention already uh, up to now that uh, we had detachments done in Sardinia where we had to do our weapon qualification. That was a highlight twice a year into being in, in an operational squadron in a fighter bomber wing. Up here at Yefa, you're doing basically all, all day long the same thing. Mm-hmm. But there were highlights too because we went out with a clean TF for Mark II runs mm-hmm. over the North Sea. And I remember once, I, I tell you this uh, uh, anecdote, uh, I remember once a Mach 2 run with a two ship, we did it with two ships, clean TFs, and we had 4,100 pounds of fuel on board. We stood in number one, and uh, we had about amber conditions, and we said, yes, we go. Tops were at 36,000 feet, 
we enter the cloud two ship formation takeoff and the cloud go to our, our uh, routine uh, area where we do the Mach 2 run, go line abreast two miles, go accelerate to Mach 2, joined up again, entered the cloud at 36,000 feet again and coming back it landed at Amber. That was highlights, you know, yeah. but you could do it. You were trained for it. You did it on a daily basis. Like you did uh, train emergency procedures. The, uh, a specialty for the 104 was the simulated partial power pattern, uh, which you have to do basically after each flight, and we trained after each flight. That was a simulation when we had a problem with the nozzle. The nozzle was hydraulically driven by engine oil. And if, the, if you have a leak in the cut, the nozzle automatically opens. And if you caught it, that you get an nozzle failure, you have a mechanical handle you could un, uh, to get it on mechanical locks. And then you had an, a, a half-closed nozzle with about 80% of engine power. And you have a 2 to 1 glide ratio, flying glide ratio on the 104. That means if you're 20,000 feet, you could uh, glide 40 miles to the next uh, base, uh, base. And then you trained it every day. With the uh, point that you flew with 260 knots on the approach speed, the whole, the, the whole uh, procedure, tried to hit at one mile 200 feet and then land the aircraft and if you're on the overrun, you lower the gear and the gear, you have three greens, landing is assured, you touch down for an emergency. And that, that means you could do with an almost dead engine, land the 104. Simulated flame-up pattern, we didn't do. Mm-hmm. If you really had a flame out, you had to bailout. Mm-hmm. And this was the highlights on a routine daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, did you enjoy your time on the 104? Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I'm single seat minded, single engine, single aircraft, single seat, and a single pilot. You don't need anything else. <laughs> and even uh, the uh, constructors did it. You see, the 104 at, at our time was the uh, yeah, working horse for, in the Cold War in Europe for NATO in Europe. Norwegians, Danish, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Italians, Spain for two years flew the 104, the Turks, Greece, Air Force, German Air Force, and they switched to F-16. What's different F-16? It's electric jet, uh, another generation, but single-seat, single engine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So then in 1980, uh, your roles changed from the F-104 to the F-104. Could you tell us about this? Definitely, because uh, I told you yesterday that uh, I flew two years as fighter bomber, then four years as an instructor, and then uh, we transitioned over here. It took me a six-week course to transition to the F-4, and uh, crew solo after uh, four flights, I think. And then it gets you to the tactical program. And the tactical program is a little different to fighter bomber uh, job, because air-to-air is, I always said, uh, just choking, it's three-dimensional flying. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, it took me to get proficient in air combat, meaning doing intercepts, fighting, close dogfights and whether and BFM and ACM missions. It took me about half a year to get proficient and to be satisfied with myself, with my performance. Yeah. And uh, then at uh, that time, because of my overall experience already, uh, I started to train younger crews here. Not as a teacher, not an instructor, but just a tactical trainer. Yeah. Uh, even uh, to get uh, to, uh, uh, to train them to lead a two-ship, to lead a four-ship. This was basically instructing that I did it on a 104 already, but uh, flying the F-4 then was, uh, was what became fun after half a year. Yeah. So was, there, was it difficult transitioning from the Air 104 to no. the F-4? No. no. It's basically uh, the same. You just have a, a higher gross weight. 
you have two engines and but flying wise for transition to it aerodynamic wise yes it was a little bit uh, different because i told you already it's 104 and low level high speed very stable formation of flying very stable the f4 is a little different it's aerodynamically in close formation a little more unstable than the f uh, 104 but uh, basically if you fly jets uh, you train them and they transition to them and after six weeks you should be proficient yeah. so can you remember your first trip in the f4 it was an instructor trip with an instructor the instructor actually me, uh, met yesterday in, in the party and uh it was just uh, after one or two simul similar rides, I think, we went out, normally strapped in the cockpit, and uh, he briefed the mission what they had to do. Basically, because you start up the engines, it's different, the ground procedures are different, but this was okay. And uh, yeah, and then uh, we went out in the area and did just familiarization with the aircraft handling, basically. Uh, a little aerobatics, and then uh, coming back to the base and uh, just did a lot of landings single engine approaches uh, to get familiar with uh, the aerodynamics and with the uh, handling of the aircraft in the landing basically if you can say, go safe out you have to go safe back that was the first mission so like you say the Phantom was um, both air to ground and air to air yeah, so like, what was was it split 50-50 no uh, for us at Whitmond at that time when I arrived here we were back to the uh, the first two years we still had, were on a tactical fighter program but then we went back just to strictly air defense and uh, in the, during this period we had both roles it was about 30 to 70 percent 30 percent air to ground 70 percent air to air so how did um, air 4 fare against like the other nato types at this time uh sure uh, it was still a two uh, second generation aircraft and at that time already f-16s and f-15s were airborne and uh we had no chance against them during fighting not only in dog fights in close into fights even with the weapon systems because f-15 had radar missiles the f-16 is better uh, in turning rates and uh, it's tiny and smaller and therefore we uh, started out the mffo operation that means mixed forces fighter operation that means two f-4s uh, went out with two f-15s just to escort them and the F-15s brought us in the weapon range with their capabilities. And that were we, these are uh, friends from Zusterberg and even from Bitburg down, the, uh, the Americans were stationed here in Europe. Uh, we flew a lot of sorties with them, even a, on a scheduled program. Mm -hmm. And it was very fun. So what weapons could the, the F-4 carry at this time? You see it on this bird. You have seen the four M9 lemurs. That's just the air-to-air -air weapon. And we have this revolving uh, Gatling gun, 20 millimeters, in the nose of them was very effective. It's basically the same gun like in the 104. Yeah. And uh, that's it for the German F4 in the air defense business. Air to ground business, you could put the same like in the one, uh, 104, and the, what we had in stock on weapons. It was cluster bombs at that time. There were a Mark uh, 84s, I think. And uh, yeah, and rocket pots. Yeah. So could you tell us some of the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the F4? There is none, actually. Uh, weaknesses of the F4, I don't remember. I, I remember even one case uh, where, I, where, like Mufti told us, with double engine over the water. I remember one incident when we were scheduled for a, a supersonic intercept against a standard weapon carrier, simulated standard weapon carrier, about 100 miles on a techie well, 100 miles over the North Sea. And uh, we run in with supersonic, we were cleared at that time, down to 500 feet uh, over the sea, and uh, run in supersonic, zoomed up. Uh, uh, killed the it was actually an AVEX 
uh, rode in a, in a circular pattern, uh, killed him, and the Avex was defended by F-15s. They never found us because we zoomed up, hit and run tactic, and we went back supersonic and uh, uh, digged out. And pr suddenly my backseater said, oh, uh, watch, we have master caution light. And I said, okay, I looked at the panel and I didn't see any lights on it. I said, okay, pressed on to get look out and uh, check the F-15, not get, get him at six o'clock. And he said, okay, the master caution light is still on. And then I looked further down and there were two generator lights. And one generator light was on. That means one engine was not running. Oh. And it was the outside engine because it was an aerodynamical flame out. I got on a supersonic intercept in the right turn, going, uh, going down again. I didn't realize that I was flying on one engine in a beer only. I just hit the ignition button and the engine came on again. But that is was, was really uh, amazing for me, not to realizing at high, very high speed that it uh, performs with one engine the same like with two engines. Yeah. <coughs> so, you mentioned a back seater there. Was it hard transitioning from a single seat to a two-seater? It took a while to uh, get used to it that you had somebody in the, co in the back uh, is talking to you. <laughs> that was just about it. Like, uh, like Mufti told us already, it was necessary because the weapon system was designed for and, and to fulfill the task, it was necessary to have two people on board. Mm -hmm. So, could you um, describe the cockpit for us? Uh, was it a lot Actually, uh, no, no, no big difference. Just uh, due, due to two engines, you have two throttles and uh, two ignition buttons and two startup master switch, engine master switches. Basically, this instrumentation was always the same. The HSI, the attitude indicator, was a little better and built a larger, and then basically all the same uh, cockpit. Yeah. So can you tell tell us a bit about the squadron you were based with? Yes, I started out in 712, the bloody who we heard yesterday, and uh, after one and a half years, I went over to the 711, the Kings in Heaven, over here in the building where we are standing now in this area, and uh, I after a couple of months, or I think I can't remember half a year or even uh, one and a half years, I became ops officer. Uh, and uh, as I tell you already privately that I was in a career to become a career officer that means you have to go to staff and all this stuff uh, I didn't want to do it and uh, when I was asked to become a squadron commander I refused because I wanted to fly anymore and we didn't want to move due to private reasons and um, then I became a additional ops officer until my end of the flying career yeah so did you ever fly on any exercises yeah sure uh, we had a lot of exercises uh, scheduled by the German Air Force. We were every year for a detachment down in Sardinia, in Deci Momano, flying DACT against Harriers, FGR2s, F-15s, Italian 104s, Canadian F-18s, uh, and the aggressor squadron from Elkenbury. That was a, for air defense training. That was a lo basically local exercise from uh, just tra transfer to Deci Momano. Then we participated in uh, TLP, Tactical Leadership Program. Then we participated in any NATO exercise, European-wise. Even when the guys came over from the States uh, and, uh, ex and flew missions with us. And besides a routine exercise, training flight every day, we had about three to four big exercises over the, in one year period. So how many hours did you get on the F-4? Actually, 1,800 and a couple of minutes, that means 3,600 uh, 3, hours J79, mm -hmm. in addition to 1,300 uh, hours J79 on the 104, 4,900 total J79 hours without any problems. <laughs> 
So overall, did you enjoy your time on the F4? Definitely, yes. A story on the 104, I can uh, I remember very well. Uh, I also was in, at the EFA base, uh, ops officer. And on a Friday uh, noon, when the second period was launched, I got a phone call from my senior ops officer. And he said, Arnulf, uh, we have a medical, uh, not an exercise, a real sortie to fly. You're the only pilot uh, available. And... Uh, just get ready to fly. We have one aircraft out on the apron already, getting service for the flight. And it was a pacemaker, hard pacemaker, coming by helicopter from Hamburg, from a hospital, and was uh, scheduled to be at uh, Kaiserslautern Landstuhl, that's the American hospital near Rammstein. And I was scheduled for the sortie to fly from Jefa as a medivac aircraft to Rammstein. And I was cleared to go supersonic. That means I Normally, when the helicopter was landing beside my aircraft, my engine was running already, they put the pacemaker, just a box like this, this size, in the e-compartment uh, b behind the cockpit, and you could pull about three or four computers. One computer I didn't need for this flight was pulled, and they could pa pack in the pacemaker, closed the, the, the hit hatches, and uh, then I went out to number one, plugged in the AB, and about... 80 to 90 miles south of Eva Air Base, basically the same south of Whitman Air Base, I came out of a B, 28,000 feet supersonic Mach 1.8. I cruised about for 20 minutes and landed after a total sortie time of 35 minutes at Rammstein. Just in the, in, at the end of the runway was a helicopter beside me and I pulled out the pacemaker, uh, get it to the helicopter to the hospital. It took the whole mission for the pacemaker uh, took from it was ordered at 11 o'clock in the morning and 14.30 in the afternoon it was at the patient. <laughs> That's a one of four story, yeah. That's a brilliant okay. story. That's so do you have any more stories? Uh, yes, I remember another one. It was very interesting because I was sitting on QAA here in, at Wittmundhafen and uh, we had normally three training flights per day and on one training flight we were scrambled out to the North Sea just doing exercises, intercepts and suddenly CRC told us okay we have to identify an aircraft coming from the North. Low and, uh, low and fast. And I said, okay, is this interrogation or now just identify? Okay, we backed out, we got vectors to the target and uh, finally my backseater picked him up very low, very fast on the radar. And what uh, the result was, we met a B-52 plus 500 knots plus at 500 feet MSL. You know, and the B-52, it flies fast, it's, it's like this. Okay, we did the, inter uh, the normal procedure, one on the left wing to show up and the second guy in shooting position behind the B-52. Then CRC told us, when we identified B-52 heading and altitude and speed, then CRC told us that the, the boss of the B-52, the captain, wants to have us on his frequency. Then we switched to, to the frequency of the captain and the captain said, okay, I can't see you, you're too far away from me, flying his left wing. And then you might come closer. I said, okay, you flying at 500 feet, 500 knots. I don't go under your wing. He said, okay, come on top of my wing. And I came actually on top of his wing, about 50 feet, 60 feet above him, close to the cockpit. We waved our hands together. And then he said, okay, show me your belly. And I showed him his belly and said, okay, now I'm satisfied. You are actually from QIA. You have missiles with you. You're uh, dismissed already. And I pulled off and then we got back to it. 
When we landed, CRC was telling us that it was a B-52 on a mission around Europe. He was coming air refueling from the States, went low level over UK, out to the North Sea, low level to Germany, through France, through Spain, and after the Spanish border he went up again on the tanker and back to USA. <laughs> it was an exercise mission for them, for the crew, yeah. and it was very interesting and fun with him for flying together. Close, closest formation we, we were able to with a B-52 overseas at 500 feet, 500 knots. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So Arnold, do you have any hobbies? Literature. I read a lot, try to write. And uh, my family. Music. And uh, yeah, celebrate tradition. <laughs> do you have a favorite tipple? Uh, it's here for pills. And if it's not available, a double-sized single mold. Very nice. Do you have a favorite aircraft? 104, like you see over here. Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? F-15. F-15? Yes. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Uh, review the interview and you will have the answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>